God had literally spoken to King Solomon on two occasions. Twice, God spoke to him audibly. And God told Solomon that if he uh, was required, not if, but that he was required to obey the law, as his father Solomon, as his father David had done. And God, who had blessed him, uh, warned him, and again now verbally, that he had to keep the law and do and submit to to God. Part of that law was that the king, this is, we saw this on Sunday in Deuteronomy 17, the king was to have one wife. He was not to multiply wives. Solomon knew this. God audibly spoke to Solomon twice and told him and warned him. So Solomon, sometime later, went ahead and married 700 women. On top of that, he had 300 concubines. Why did he do that? Many of these women, if not all of them, I don't know how many, were from foreign lands. And God gave the very real reason in his law that if you married foreigners, they would draw your heart away from me. And that's exactly what Solomon did. Why did Solomon build temples to false gods, to the gods of his wives on God's very land, in the land of Israel? Why would he do such a thing? Fast forward a bit in history. Not too much farther, actually. And you've got that. Now, we don't know if this is actually true, if it happened. It's in the Aeneid, I believe. That's where uh, uh, Virgil's Aeneid. But it is the Trojan horse. Now, you know, uh, during the Trojan War, while the Greeks are having no success, they... They, they leave, they all get on their ships and leave, and they leave this big, massive horse in front of the city. Well, why would the Trojans take it inside the city and not look inside it? At least give a peek and see that there are soldiers inside. Why would they do that? Why would the Roman Empire abandon the very thing that made them great? which was their hard-working, middle-class people who were smart and fit and, and able to solve problems. They left their republic. For what? To conquer all of that. They thought, look at, look at all we have. It ruined them. It wouldn't be long before it ruined them. That's imperialism. They left republicanism and freedom so that they could conquer more. Why would they do that? It doesn't preserve them. And uh, it didn't. Finally, why would Hitler invade Russia? Now, this is a stupid move. Now, of course, we know Hitler's insane. But still, nobody in, of all the people who had tried from Napoleon and others who had tried to invade Russia, the winter always gets you. You can't do it. It's too big. It's too vast. And they have too many people. Yet, yeah, he did it anyway. And they froze to death. And uh, lost the Battle of Stalingrad, turned the war. Today we look at kingdoms in light of human need. Why do we need kingdoms? They're always around, right? From the beginning. Why do we need them? Why can't we all just live individually alone? But it turns out that we need them. Why do we need rulers? We need those too. And in light of, as Paul is warning 
the Thessalonians, or, or telling the Thessalonians, he is warning them, don't be deceived. That the end, which is the tribulation, <clears throat> is not going to come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is in the temple proclaiming to be God. <clears throat> Excuse me. That time is coming, and that is the worst of this. Very same situation, but it's the worst of it. It is the highlight, the, the pinnacle of what we're going to look at today. But we have a king and a kingdom but it's not of this world. So we're going to start in, I believe, 1 Samuel. Yeah, let's go to 1 Samuel. There's <coughs> this thing that was... <coughs> Come on now. <laughs> My throat. <coughs> 1 Samuel chapter 8, or is it 12? 12. 1 Samuel 12, but we'll go to 8 later. Let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God and be ready to hear what he has to tell us about our need and how he's going to meet our need. And God always meets our need. He promises that. But if we run away from him, then in essence we're trying to, no matter how much we're lying to ourselves, we're trying to solve our needs on our own. And we can't do that. It's impossible. So with humility and meekness, let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you that through your word we are instructed in all ways. Uh, we thank you that you have, you guide us in our personal lives and looking at history, looking at the world that we live in, not being stressed and having joy, being a light to the world. And that's what we look for today, Father, through our king and the kingdom which you have already created from the foundation of the world that we are members of. We're not physically in it yet. Show us, Father, how to be lights to the world as those who live to our King, for our King, for our Lord and Savior, and in the ways of His kingdom. May we not be deceived by the kingdoms around us in the world. And in light of, of course, we thank you for the learning of the, what the great kingdom that is to come that will conquer the whole earth, but that will not survive because it is the pinnacle of evil. While we are persecuted, Father, and while we are tempted, show us how to stand firm, each of us individually, to know how much we are loved by you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the Bible talks about the foolishness in mankind, and it talks about this quite a bit. The Greek words used for it generally referred to non-thinking. Uh, one of the, the Greek, the word for folly, it's not used very much in the New Testament. Is, uh, the, the Greek word for mind and with the negative in front of it. So, folly is no mind. Uh, there's another word that's very similar, that's thinking, phronos, or phroneo, which means to think, and it's got the negative in front of it. It means to be non-thinking. And <clears throat> as we see, you know, in the depictions of, you know, everything in, in your fiber should say, don't bring that big horse into the city. Everything in your fiber should say, you know what, why don't we just take care of our own land and our own people why do we need to expand so much? You know, why do we need to take over everybody's culture? 
know, why do we need to do, why do I need, why should I put that, you know, get personal now, why should I put that in my body? Every time I do, it hurts me. Everybody knows that it hurts me. And God has told me over and over again it hurts me. So why should I do it again? And I know better. And that is what is called folly. Why should I say that when I know I shouldn't? Why should I eat that when I know I shouldn't? I mean, it can be very innocent things, like eating too many cookies at night, which is my problem. <laughs> um, I'm trying to conquer that one. But, uh, you know, after I do that, there's something else to conquer. But whatever. Um, you know, why am I doing that which I know I should not do? And so we're actually asking the question, why is the human race so often so foolish? Folly is doing when all reason, experience, and evidence says not to. Like walking off a cliff. I think this guy in my picture is blindfolded. You know. But that, that's appropriate. Uh, <clears throat> folly is doing something when all reason, experience, and evidence says don't do that. And I do it anyway. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of, God says, a child. And yep, it is. And yet us as grown-ups have this same issue. When we look at history, it turns out that folly is immune to error, whatever error it's in, race, gender, type of government. It doesn't matter. Monarchy, republic, democracy, uh, doesn't matter. Gender, doesn't matter. Race, doesn't matter. There isn't one particular race who hasn't exhibited it. And social class. There hasn't been, you know, elites do it, have the middle class. You say, well, if the middle class ruled, you know, then things would be all right. What? There's no fault. There's no idiocy in the middle class? Of course there is. All governments throughout all history have sooner or later made decisions that go against, directly against their own self-preservation. And they know better. But they do it anyway. It's amazing to see... It's, a, it's an amazing fact that self-preservation, right? When you hear the word self-preservation, you probably think of selfishness, right? I'm going to preserve myself at all costs. That attitude does not preserve you. The way to preserve yourself is to be charitable. Give and it will be given to you. Right? It's completely antithetical to the human race's thinking because we're fools. Virtue and charity preserve nations, not conquering, not taking from others. Charity and virtue preserve nations. Charity and virtue preserves individuals. Folly means that you know that there is an alternative and you have been instructed in that alternative. This, now, we're not talking about someone who doesn't know any better. All right. There's there are times where we do things. We're like, wow, I didn't know that was bad for me. Folly is when you know it is, and you do it anyway. That's what we're interested in today. Folly means that you know <clears throat> that there is an alternative, and you have been instructed by the authority of God, which means it comes from His Word, 
that the alternative to what you're about to do or say or think, now this happens, we have folly in our thinking where it happens the most, that the alternative is righteous and good. You also know that others have chosen the righteous and the good and they have prospered. For instance, Solomon knew all about his father David. He knew about David's failures, his father's failures, and he knew about his father's repentance, and he knew about his father's successes. And all of David's successes were built around his submission to and humility to God. And yet, in spite of all of that, you know better, you've been instructed in what is better, the Word of God has told you better, and you know it comes from that. You know people who have chosen the better who have prospered, and yet you still choose your own way. That is what the Bible calls folly. Now, if you ask for an antonym, if I asked you for an antonym, the opposite of folly, what would you think of? The opposite of folly. You know, if it were put to me, I would probably say wisdom. And that's correct, actually. Being wisdom, wisdom, being wise, I mean, or smart would be the opposite of folly. But, There's one opposite of folly that would not come to mind, I don't think, to any of us, and that is meekness. And actually, it truly is the opposite to folly. And Christ would say, the meek would inherit the earth. Now, there's a reason why I chose this picture. It is a knight who is bowing himself to the Lord Jesus. It's obviously not a real picture, but... It's, and, and the knight is armored, he's strong, he's trained, and he has a sword. But notice the sword is in its sheath. What meekness is, is the ability to do something and not doing it. You know, a person may be cornered and have no choice and have to do something. That's not what meekness is. I, I may, you know, because... Of, for whatever reasons, I'm forced to make a decision that is a good one. Say there's only one way to go. No, all the all the, the wrong ways are blocked off, and the right way is the only way to go. And so I take it. That's not meekness. Meekness is you have the power to do the wrong thing, and you choose not to. Because you're submitting, like he is, to the Lord. I could say something to you, and I won't. I could eat that or drink that in front of you, and I won't. I could go there or go over there or be with that person or think this thought or watch this thing, but I will not. I can do it. I have the power to. I have the ability to. I have the opportunity to, but I won't do it because the Lord says no. That is meekness. The Lord said, the meek inherit the earth. In the New American Standard, it's translated gentle, but it's the Greek word for meekness. Gentle and meekness is the same. So, when we think of folly, you know, the opposite of being a fool is being wise, but being meek is also being wise. And the reason why is you can't be meek unless you know God's will. You can't choose. If something's given to you and you have an option, you say, no, I'm not going to do that. 
True meekness is when you know God's will. In other words, you say no to the thing or the place or the person. You say no because of God's will. You know God's will. Somebody may say no to something because, I don't know, it gives them an allergic reaction. Say, I'm meek. (laughs) Right? I won't eat that because I break out in hives. Well, you know, that's self-preservation. You know, that's, that's not meekness. Meekness is you know the right way. And you could absolutely do the wrong way. But you bow your knee to the Lord and say, your will be done. And hence, you have to know the will of God to do it. You have to know the Lord to do it. Hence, meekness is wisdom. One of the examples we find in the early church is hovered around eating meat sacrificed to idols. It was a big issue because there was a lot of that stuff uh, in the cities. In, in, in Corinth, Paul writes a whole chapter about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that um, you know, the, the Christians were, you know, the meat sacrificed to idols is it's offered, it's at the market. Can I Can I buy it? I mean, it's, Can I eat it? It's offered to some false god. And Paul said to them, well, of course you can, because that god's not real. So just the fact that they offered it to a statue that does have no person to it, yeah, you can eat it. However, Paul said, if you eat it when someone who is, you know, uh, watching you or someone is witnessing you eat it and it would hurt their spiritual lives, it would hurt their, their understanding because they have no understanding. Then he said, don't do it. And Paul said he would never eat meat again if it caused his brother to stumble. And so what meekness does is say, well, there's a better way. And I choose that way. And if I have to say no to something like meat, absolutely, I will. That's what meekness is. And so it's submission. It's wisdom. It's humility and wisdom. And when meekness meets wisdom. In other words, you're wise and you're meek. You're mature. It's a true formula for maturity. You will do God's will. Because you know God's will. And you're able and willing to apply it. You will live life, if you are meek and wise, you will live life according to the rules of the kingdom and according to the rule of your king. And not the folly that we see in this world. Now Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, our passage, that the final dispensation of the interim age, the interim age is the age between the first advent of Christ and the last advent of Christ. Well, the second advent, which is the last advent. The first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. It ends with the tribulation, that interim time. And the tribulation is an age where the final imperialist evil ruler sits on the throne of the earth. That's the Antichrist. Paul said the apostasy comes first. Therefore, the apostasy is going to get worse. It has to. And apostasy means to leave something. It means to depart from. And... As we have seen, apostasy is political and religious. And so what we did on Sunday was to look, and I want to look at this a little bit more, 
was the king, the first king of Israel. And this is <coughs> uh, based on the fact that the people wanted a king. Uh, the people of Israel, this is after or during, sorry, Samuel's judgeship. And Samuel's a prophet and a judge. That uh, <coughs> after, Right after the judges, somewhere probably around B.C. 1100 or so, that the people want a king. And the rules were already given. This was in, why is that there? Not there. There it is. No, no, it's not. Okay. Slide's not there. Uh, Yahweh Elohim chooses the king. All right. So the Lord God, he said in Deuteronomy 17, chooses the king. I'll choose the king. And that would imply that when the time was right to choose the king, that God would choose the king. We all, God also said that the king was responsible to his law. And therefore, when Israel, or the people of Israel, wanted a king like all nations, God had already told them that the king was going to be first off chosen by him, chosen at the right time, and that the king would have to obey the Mosaic law, and therefore, whatever king Israel would have would be nothing like the kings of the other nations. The kings of the other nations were monarchs of Oriental style, and Israel was warned that if they did gain a king like that, that that king would rule them in a certain way. <coughs> now, again, uh, leaving is the word for apostasy. The king was not to be an apostate. The king was responsible to keep the law. Look at 1 Samuel 12. 12, 12. First Samuel 12, 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. So this is something that, you know, whether we know who the Ammonites are or where they came from or who this god Nahash is, who this guy is, what matters is, is that as Samuel was getting old and the people were looking around them, now, the Ammonites are a neighboring nation. They're on their border, out to the east. And the Ammonites are, they have, they're showing signs of invading. And so, you know, it, what is this? It, the people puts, the life puts pressure on you. The Ammonites are coming. And Samuel's too old, and his two sons, which we saw this, it, Samuel's sons, which were slated to take his place, were useless. They couldn't do the job. And so the elders of Israel are nervous. And they're saying, give us a king. Uh, so they wanted a king like all nations. They wanted a warrior. They wanted someone who's going to fight back, fight off their problems. The problem right now is the Ammonites. For us, our problem is whatever it is for us individually. It's economic, it's personal, it's physical, it's mental, it's a relationship, it's time, it's money, it's whatever. <coughs> and we, you know, and God is wonderfully patient at delaying the solution to the problem so that our faith gets tested. Right? Every time a problem crops up in our lives, it doesn't, like, get destroyed in a second. 
I mean, God could have just rained fire down on the Ammonites. And they could have said, oh, yeah, right, right. We don't need a human God, a human king. Right? Give us a king, Samuel. And Samuel said, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 hold on. And then fire comes down upon the Ammonites and destroys them all. And they say, ah, Samuel, we don't need a human king, do we? See? But God doesn't do that. And God actually will give them what they ask for. You want a human king like all nations? You're going to get one. So what is God doing to us here? And it's the same in our own lives. He's given us what we pursue. And he's also allowing us to reap what we sow. So when we pursue the wrong thing and we feel the pain of it and actually the lack of fulfillment from it, God says, do you see? Now what? Turn and go the way. Don't Stop the folly. You know better. Turn around, which is repent, and go the way that I have instructed. And then you'll be meek, not foolish. So they're going to press it. But the point here is that the king, just like us, like them. So verse 12 again, when you saw... That Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen. And they just they elected Saul, whom you have asked for. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. See that? The king is involved. The king has to follow the law. It puts quite the responsibility upon him. And But, you know, unlike any other in Israel, if one man in Israel doesn't keep the law, the whole nation doesn't suffer. But if the king doesn't keep the law, the whole nation suffers. And that's exactly what we see. Um, and so... You fear the Lord and serve him, they, the king must and they must, and hence they would be absolutely unique, right? They would be so unique that they'd be a light to the world, wouldn't they? If you will not listen to the, verse 15, if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Clear warning, right? And what is... You know, I laugh because I've done it myself and I've reaped what I've sown. And we all have. But how dumb are we if we keep going back to it? I know for many years I've gone back, gone back, gone back. And, and then, you know, it's it becomes, a, a you know, God does something miraculous in your life. Uh, if you keep searching and keep praying and keep trying and getting up and keep going, getting up and keep going, that's perseverance, then God's going to do things in your life that are going to really change your heart. But that is the issue, isn't it? It's a change of heart. Because in Israel, they're not going to have that change of heart. And what's going to happen is, in Samuel, in, back in chapter 8, God told Samuel to tell them what this king, the king like all nations, what he would do to you. And we would think that after they had heard that, that that would have changed their mind. 
And this isn't Samuel's hunch, okay? So this is, again, Samuel's going to go to them. We read it on Sunday. And he's going to say, thus says the Lord, right? The prophets all say this. Thus says the Lord. This is not for me. This is not what I think is going to happen. This is what the Lord who knows all things says is going to happen. God says that the king, like all nations, is going to do what the kings, like all other nations, do. He's going to take your sons and your daughters. He's going to take your land. He's going to commit your sons and your daughters to his own service. After you have worked so hard to cultivate your own land, the king's going to take it. And then he's going to tax you, whereas you weren't taxed before. Look at First uh, Samuel eight nineteen. Sam, uh, First Samuel eight nineteen. Nevertheless. After they heard all that, he's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to take your land. He's going to tax you. And then, and, and God said, and you can read just before this, you're going to cry out to me and say, please save us from our own king. And God's going to say, I'm not going to listen. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Oh, that must have been like a dagger through God's heart. Now, we already saw that it's not a problem to have a king, that God said they would have a king, and God promised them that they would have a king, but it would be the king of his own choice, meaning also at the timing that God had. They didn't want that. We also may be, look at verse 20 again, be like all the nations. Now, like all the nations means in our age, like the world. And you and I are not to be like the world. Now, for I think with age, it becomes more clarity on this. And those of us who are here are, are old enough to, to know that, well, we've been in the world long enough to know that it pretty much stinks anyway, so why would I want to be a part of it? But there's young people in our families, in our congregation that we know, younger people who are still kind of optimistic about what the world is about. And it has to be told to them over and over again that there's nothing in the way of the world. There's, nothing, there's plenty of good things in the world, people and materials, and they all, all can be used for good. They can all be enjoyed in a good way. But the way of the world is always going to be wrong. So when the world says happiness is a certain way, right there, it's a lie. It's contrary to what God says. The creator of happiness, by the way. What God says makes us happy, the world does not agree with that. Correct. What the world says is a, is a legitimate relationship. A sexual relationship or a romantic relationship that is against God's word. It's not legit. And it's not going to fulfill you. Like, you know, people get into sexual romantic relationships for self-fulfillment. And it's not going to. 
because it's not created by God, the only one who can fulfill the human soul. Is this not obvious? <laughs> and yet, is the world not filled with folly? They say, oh, no, I'm going to find fulfillment in my own way. So we want a king, like all nations, just like, and I, I do I want to emphasize Christians who want to be like the world. And there's Christian churches who are trying to be like the world so that they can, I don't know, fill their seats or something. But you've got to, we, to be a light to the world, have to follow our king. And our king, Jesus Christ, who was in this world for decades, and his ministry, when he was a public ministry for three and a half years, he did not conform to the way of the world, even when threatened with death. He did not conform to it. And there's too much of that going on. Once Christianity has become weak in the West, it's become weak. Modern Christianity has not even adhered to the inerrancy of Scripture. Or the fact that miracles are real. Or that Christ is resurrected. There's some areas, of, and uh, you know, I think are a part, I wouldn't say they're Christians who don't, those who don't believe in the resurrection in my, my book would not be Christians. But, you know, it, it's because people have compromised that which is not of the world with the world that uh, its Christianity has lost its strength. And, and that's a, it's a mighty interesting concept. It's not a concept, but a truth that to be heavily persecuted is to be strong. I mean, persecuted for the right reasons, obviously. So in verse 21, now after Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice, to their voice, and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Now, it would take until Solomon for all of this to come to fruition. But it would, word for word. Uh, Solomon would become that monarch. David somewhat, because David did multiply wives for himself. And he built a kingdom. But David was also one who repented of his failures. And, um, and really, uh, in every case after he repented, he, he worshipped God. So David was definitely a man after God's own heart. But Solomon was not. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was definitely not. He was just as bad as Solomon in his later days. And Rehoboam made dumb decisions and it happened through him that the kingdom split. Solomon's son would make a terrible decision that would cause the kingdom to split. And the northern kingdom, which was given the name Israel or Ephraim, would become conquered and taken into captivity. And uh, more accurately, they would be dispersed, dispersed to the east. Now, some call them the lost ten tribes. They're not lost. We know where they went. They're not lost. They went to the east. The Assyrians took them away. 
The northern kingdom about 150 years, sorry, the southern kingdom, Judah, about 150 years after the northern kingdom would be captured and destroyed by the Babylonians. They would return, rebuild their city, but they would never have a king again. It's, it's of extreme importance because in Judah, in the southern kingdom, after the uh, Babylonian conquest, they would never have a real king and then, ne- never again, they still haven't. But they wouldn't have a king right up until Jesus Christ came to them and said the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus Christ is a true king and he came to them. Now, in 63 B.C., 63 years or about 60 years before the birth of Christ, a Roman by the name of Pompey conquered. There was some some, uh, unru- uh, some restlessness going on in that area, what they, the Romans would call Palestine, and he conquered it. Pompey conquered it in 63 B.C., and he made it a Roman province. And from there would start this new phenomenon that would happen in the world, which was called imperialism. Now, imperialism, briefly, we're going to spend a bit about this later because it's, uh, our Antichrist is the great imperialist. But imperialism is when you conquer a people and then you put your own guy, uh, your own people in charge over them. So you conquer another nation, and instead of like in the past they would say to the other nations, all right, now you're conquered, you can run your own business and do what you want, but you have to pay us taxes. And if we go to war, you have to send your sons to battle on our our side. And if you didn't do that, the conquering nation would come back and destroy you. And so, but before imperialism, if you conquered a nation, you could keep your own rulers. Uh, When imperialism came, the Romans said, we're going to put our rulers over your people. Hence, you know, someone like Pontius Pilate who rules in Jerusalem. It's interesting that the imperialism had begun as Pontius Pilate is in Jerusalem. He is actually trying the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ. And he asks him, this imperialist really, he asks him, he says, are you a king? They keep saying you're a king. Are you a king? And Jesus said, are you asking this of your own desire? I mean, do you really want to know if I'm a king? Or just because others have told you about me? And Pilate says, I'm not a Jew. I don't care about Jewish kings. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, I am a king. My kingdom is not of this world. And it's so important to us because it's there that the true king comes, stands in his temple, and proclaims himself king. They say, no, we don't want you. And then the representative of imperialist Rome is the one who says, are you a king? (laughs) Is God in control of history or what? Ironically, it would be that one 
that Roman who had put a sign above Jesus when he was on the cross that said King of the Jews. He is the king. And for us, you know, we know who he is, what he is, what our future is. We know the word of God. And it's absolute folly for us to fall prey to anything that is not that kingdom. And I don't mean, you know, I've I've talked about addiction a lot lately and that kind of thing. But I, I also mean the fact of not being a happy person. That's an insult to our Lord and to our kingdom. To being stressed out, miserable, cranky, not being content, being worried about the problems in your life. The Ammonites are coming. Who cares? Let them come. Now, somebody walked into my office today and told me that our rent increased. I was like, uh, oh, (laughs) Deb, we'll talk later. But it's uh, it, it happened today. I'm like, um, all right, it's quite an increase. I'm like, hmm, this could be against the law, maybe. I don't know. We'll talk. But I'm like, you know what? I mean, the old Joe would have been, God, you know, I would have been mad. I'm like, bring it. I don't know what it is. Is Jesus forcing us out of the building? I don't know what's happening. Or is it the devil trying to get us all stressed out? Whatever way, we just have to follow the Lord and everything will be just fine. There's blessing in it. Now, how many Christians are actually a light to the world? And that's what this gets to. Because after Paul says to the Thessalonians, no, you're not in the tribulation because these things have not happened yet. But since you are not of the tribulation and these things haven't happened yet, You need to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ with your life. Glorify Him. And that means you've got to be like Him. Powerful, wise, meek, happy. Depending on the Father, not stressed out, not afraid. Conquering the problems in your life and the people in your life, not on your own. With the truth by God the Holy Spirit, you conquer. Not making excuses as to why you're miserable or why you're not happy and it's that fault and their fault or it's your DNA's fault or you, you, you know, it, you're not good enough. That's a bunch of a bull. Because God has made you good enough. But he's he has he can't conquer that. Yeah, I heard of a, a guy who has problem. He's a Christian who has has serious problems, and he has an excuse for it. And it's an excuse that people in the world would say, "Well, you know, yeah, I can understand why you're an angry person." You know, maybe it's someone who went through a war, and they have PTSD. Maybe it's someone who's just been sickly their whole lives. Just born with a weak body and a sickly body. Is God not powerful enough to conquer these things? If he's not, he's not. But if he is, and I know he is, then who are any of us 
to not be conquerors in life. At one point when the people were convinced enough of his power, notice what they wanted to do. Go to John 6. John 6, 14. Oh, and by the way, if, the, if, if you're a board of director guy and you know who you are and you, you just heard that and you're saying, wait a minute, I sent you a text. So check your phone. It's there. And I'll, I'll update you all. John 6, 14. Uh, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, which is, by the way, feeding the 5,000, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. The prophet. Now, it would be likely that they're referring right back to what Moses, this is a prophecy from Moses, that God said through Moses that a prophet like Moses would come, and it's in Deuteronomy 18, and, uh, and they're, they're, you know, here Christ feeds 5,000, there are 5,000 men, there's probably like 10,000 people, he feeds them all with loaves and fishes. And then verse 15 So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, please notice how different this is from what the Antichrist is. The Antichrist is going to be... Now, you also know that Satan had offered Christ the kingdoms of the world, right? When Christ was tempted, it was the first thing he did when in his ministry begun is that he was taken by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and the devil tempted him. And one of the temptations is, I offer you the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. And that same offer is made to the Antichrist. Bow down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. The Antichrist is a man. He's a human being. And to that man, whoever he is, is going to be offered that same thing And that man is going to say, absolutely. Yes. It's going to be his dream come true. Talk about folly. We'll spend a little time talking about the folly of that man. Not that we, you know, he's not going to rule us. He's not a problem for us. But we learn from him to to not have folly in our own lives. But anyway... The people want to make him king. Notice what Jesus does. He doesn't say, well, it's about time you figured out who I am. Let's get this ball rolling. Does Jesus not have the power to destroy the Romans? We hear him say in the Garden of Gethsemane that I can call down 12 legions of angels anytime I want. That's 70,000 angels, by the way. I'm thinking that's more than sufficient to take care of any army that the earth has ever had. But he doesn't even need angels. He's God, right? But he doesn't do it. Nor does he accept this overt political, this is what they want him to be, a political overt way of which to rule. Instead, He withdraws and goes to the mountain by himself to pray. Now, we're not done here because the next thing that happens is significant. 
in Matthew, Mark, and John, it's not recorded in Luke, but in Matthew, Mark, and John, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and they want to make him king, in all those three Gospels, he goes off to be by himself. And in all three of those Gospels, when he goes off to be by himself, he sends the disciples on a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee without him. He usually goes with them. He doesn't go with them this time. So he feeds the 5,000. He goes off to be alone when they want him to be king. It says here that he knows it. He knows that they want to make him king. So instead of joining them, he goes off to be alone. He leaves them. And he sends his disciples without him across the sea. And it's stormy night. You know, you always, that story, the stories that always start, it was a wild and stormy night. And it was. And in the middle of the night, it says it was, I can't remember, third watch or something. I mean, it's literally like three in the morning, and they're breaking their arms trying to row across the Sea of Galilee. All of them experienced fishermen, so. And yet, here comes Christ walking on the water. Isn't this odd? Well, it shows he's God, right? Walking on water has become a phrase in our whole world that says, you're God, right? But is that the reason he does it? He's already done multiple miracles. He's done so much. He just fed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. What is he doing? Notice this. They wanted a political leader. Jesus went away to be by himself. And when it was the middle of the night and no one was around, it was then that he came to his disciples in the most bizarre way. In the middle of the Sea of Galilee while this wind is raging, and here he is walking along. (laughs) And they think he's a ghost. There, it says in the text that they're deathly afraid. They're terrorized. It's a ghost. And Jesus says, be calm. It's me. What? And then of all people, and of course it would be Peter, who says, Lord, if it's your will, I want to get out of the boat and walk on the water too. And crazy enough, the Lord says, come. And Peter does. According to the text, it says that he took a few steps. We would have to assume that he walked on water. And then he looked around at the waves and he got afraid and he started to sink. And as he sinked, sinked? As he sinked, he says something that we all say. Because we all sink. Lord, help. That's what he says. Lord, help me. And Jesus does. And Jesus says, now, Jesus at that point doesn't say, you know what, Peter, do you realize, Peter, that you just walked on water for a few steps? No one's ever done that besides me. I mean, you're not as good as me, but that's pretty good. Congratulations. He doesn't say that. He says, Peter, why is your faith lacking? He actually condemns him. What does this tell us? The Lord is going to come to you. He's already come to you, right? Did he come to you on TV? Did he come to you uh, like in a a big scene? 
They want to make him king. What does he do? He goes off to be by himself. And then he comes to his disciples in the most strange and private way. Every, every uh, salvation story I've heard from everybody is a bit strange. It's absolutely unique. And it's private. I mean, even people who have come to believe at, uh, you know, at meetings, like evangelistic meetings or something like that, it's always private. One-on-one, like the Lord comes to us, doesn't he? His gospel comes to us. And we become believers, and then he says, follow me. And if we mature, we're going to actually do it. We're going to be lights to the world. But after we take a few steps of brilliancy, like Peter walking on the water, we're going to take some brilliant steps, lights to the world. And just as you're about to pat yourself on the back for what an awesome Christian you are, you're going to start sinking. Because you're a sinner. The Lord's going to tell us to keep growing, keep learning, and keep becoming like Him. He actually tells us to mature to the stature that belongs to Him. We're never going to reach it. But He tells us to keep going. My whole point of that is that our Lord... Come on. Our Lord is not a king like all the nations. I mean, it's not even close. He rides into Jerusalem, how? On a steed with an army and a big white horse and a donkey. A a young donkey. (laughs) Like, right? He's nothing like the kings of the world. Nothing. And therefore, if we follow him, he says, Blessed are the meek, they inherit the earth. He said, Come to me, all all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. I am meek, the Lord said. What does that mean? Think about it. It, Meekness is again the power of, To do a thing and not do it because of God's command. Jesus Christ was God. Talk about power. And he chose not to use it to follow the Father's plan. That's our king. And if you're like him, you will be... See my little bird there? Can you see him? That's a fake bird. I couldn't find a picture that had the scene I wanted with the bird, so I plopped a bird in there. (laughs) But it's a desert scene where there's nothing, right? And then there's this bright light. We're all supposed to be that. As he said in Matthew 5.16, The meek inherit the earth. He says, Let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. I have no excuse here. None. You say, oh, you don't know my kids. You don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You don't know my job. You don't know my financial situation. You don't know my health situation. You don't know what I don't have. You don't know the experiences I had in my past, what my mom and dad did to me. 
You don't know this. God knows it all, and he doesn't have a separate Bible for you. He doesn't have another thing that says, you know, oh, oh, you had it so rough. Don't let your light, you don't have to let your light shine. You can be like a little refrigerator bulb. Like a little tiny light. No, he says, let it shine. Overcome. Overcome. Because of me. Our King. Now, I hear this, I hear this passage all the time. And one of the times I heard it not long ago, it caused me to break down in tears. And it's this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, the Lord said, that they may have life and have it abundantly. That I'm, I'm the king. I came not to conquer the world. I came to give you life. But what does the thief do? The thief is the sin, the world, the devil. It all falls under the category of the thief. It's the one who robs you, robs you of life. It robs you. He robs you. It robs you. Sin, evil, that thing you think is going to make you happy, that's folly. You know better. But yet you keep going back to it. Keep going back to him or her or there. You keep delving into that kind of thinking. And every time it hurts you, you do it anyway. You know better. You're folly. You don't want to be that. That's the thief. The thief only the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If we submit to him. We study, we apply, we obey, we trust, we pray. We are filled with the Spirit. We'll walk in this life as if the kingdom of God is already around us. Happy. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for the kingdom come. Thank you that your will will be done. Open our eyes, Father, to the fact of the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus, that we may live with the courage that comes from You, from Your Spirit and Word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.